the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and the Crop Tech Show, and hosted by me, Alice Dyer, and me, Ash Burbage. Today, we're going to be exploring the topic of water use in agriculture, which seems particularly topical with yet another very dry winter and what's turned into a very wet spring. On top of the more adverse weather events farmers are increasingly experiencing, we're also seeing a lot of changes to water policy, from abstraction licences to planning restrictions on water storage, threatening to compound issues with water security. In this episode, we're going to delve into the world of all things water, from application and economics to policy, to find out how we can make UK agriculture more water secure. Before we get started with the first speaker, don't forget you can get one basis CPD point for tuning into this podcast by emailing the name of the podcast episode plus your basis account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. Now for our first speaker today, I've got Kelly Hewson Fisher here with me. She's NFU National Water Resources Specialist and she's going to start by updating us on the latest with water abstraction licences. Kelly, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. I just wanted to start really by getting a bit of background on the situation and what's been going on. Um, Obviously, the Environment Agency announced changes to abstraction licences. So do you mind just kind of talking us through exactly what has happened, why and what it will mean for farmers abstracting water going forward? Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you, um, Alice, for inviting me onto the podcast. It's a great opportunity to go through um, some of the challenges that are facing um, the agriculture and horticulture um, sector, but also looking at the opportunities. So, as you say, we'll start with the, um, like you say, the legislation and the changes that are being worked through currently. So, some of the programmes are um, current, um, live, and some abstractors will have received letter and notification of these programmes of work from the Environment Agency. And there are others that are in the pipeline. So we'll just quickly go through them. Um, If there's any further information required, um, then there is always our website, um, but also the gov.uk website as well. So just starting... um, As a bit of background, so just taking a bit of a step back, the Water Abstraction Plan of 2017 um, aimed to address unsustainable abstraction. Um, And so the Environment Agency has been working on a number of programmes, as I said, to look at abstraction across all sectors. So not just the agriculture and horticulture sector, but all sectors. So that would include things like water companies just to ensure that that abstraction is sustainable and doesn't pose a risk of damage to the environment. So just as a reminder, all of the programmes that I'll I'll just quickly run through could affect both time-limited licences and permanent abstraction licences. So some people might call permanent licences licences of rights, that they're one of the same. So just to say that, you know, these programmes of work could affect all licences. So the first programme, just to alert everyone to, is what's called the Unused Licence Headroom Programme. 
So the aim of this programme is to remove unused and unneeded volume from licences where it's no longer required. And so you will have been sent a letter from the Environment Agency asking for further information and evidence from abstraction licence holders to confirm the requirement on their licences. So if you've received a letter, please do contact the Environment Agency, please do engage with them um, and work through that process. Um, the next programme of work is the Water Framework Directive programme. So the Water Framework Directive was implemented to improve water quality, um, so the quality of water bodies and prevent them from deteriorating. So this programme of work did actually um, look at changes required to agricultural abstraction licences back in 2018. So there were changes made to some licences then. Those abstraction licence holders were advised that they would be reviewed again in 2024, i.e. next year. So what we're waiting for at the moment, and we should be getting clarification um, shortly, is the Environment Agency's plan for those licences at 2024. So there are a significant number of time-limited licences specifically across East Anglia and the East Midlands, which um, will be reviewed at that 2024 date. And as I say, we're just waiting imminently and patiently for the information to come from the Environment Agency as to what, what could happen with those licences at the 2024 date. Um, the other two um, programmes of work I just wanted to draw um, your listeners' attention to is the Environmental Permitting Regulation. So at the moment, we're waiting, or the Environment Agency is waiting for a statutory instrument to be issued by the government to the Environment Agency, which will allow the Environment Agency to move and progress the process of moving abstraction licences, which are currently regulated under the Water Resources Act, into permits, which will be regulated under the Environmental Permitting Regulation. So in time, this would see all licences move to permits and they would all be treated in the same manner and could be reviewed every six years. So whether you had a time-limited licence or a permanent licence, without getting into sort of the nuances of it, the, it this, this regulation would see all of those licences move under the Environmental Permitting Regulation. There's likely to be some significant changes for abstractors when this move occurs um, and when those permits are fully um, embraced under the Environmental Permitting Regulation. So we're really keen to, to see and understand the full details of this transitional um, arrangement. Um, and all will become, I'm sure, clearer once we get that statutory or once the Environment Agency gets that statutory instrument issued from the government and we're able to progress with the move. What we're hearing is that that move has been delayed because of the delay of issuing the statutory instrument. And so it's likely that the, the move will occur um, next year now, so summer of 2024. So we'll wait and see on that one. But certainly we are involved with conversations uh, with the Environment Agency to understand the, the impacts of that and, and, and able to then uh, translate that down to our members. And then the last one I just wanted to um, mention was the Environment Act 2020, uh, 2021. So Section 88 within the Environment Act 
has the ability for the Environment Agency to change obstruction licences from the 1st of January 2028, where there is deemed a risk of damage to the environment caused by obstruction, and there is no uh, requirement for paying any compensation for those changes that need to be made. And this is really looking at permanent licences. So the ability for the Environment Agency to change, so to reduce obstruction licence volumes, or in some situations revoke obstruction licences without paying compensation from the 1st of January 2028. So the Environment Agency has begun the process of looking at the catchments that could potentially be affected. And they have written out to licence holders um, earlier this year, and there will be another tranche of letters going out later on this year um, with additional information. Um, but it is in catchments where the Environment Agency currently believe there may be um, a risk of environmental damage caused by um, abstraction. So the letters let's sets out the um, process, so letting licence holders know that the Environment Agency is going to be reviewing the licences in that catchment and that they'll be in touch with due course, but primarily stating that there may need to be changes made to their licences to make abstraction more sustainable. And as I say, the first reductions under this programme are expected to take effect from the 1st of January 2028. So, there is quite a few programmes at the minute, Alice, coming down the line, which could affect um, abstraction licences and um, abstractors, licence holders, um, and we really need to be able to understand the impact of those and look at what measures we need to put in put in place to be able to, to mitigate the effects. And just on that point, um, the move to permitting, is that definitely happening then? We assume it is happening, although we can't assume to the nth degree um, yeah. until the statutory instrument has been issued by the government. So um, we, we assume it is, but we, um, as I say, the Environment Agency are waiting for the statutory instrument to be issued. Um, and so until that has been provided, then the Environment Agency cannot uh, continue with the process of moving licences to permits. Right, okay. And so in light of, you know, all these changes that you just mentioned, is there anything that farmers should be doing kind of in preparation that can, you know, get them ready for any changes that might be on the horizon? I think when you receive a letter to say that, for example, with the Environment Act, the Environment Agency has, as I say, started writing to licence holders now to say that there may be changes that are required to their licences you know, from 2028, and that it may be some years before the Environment Agency is able to advise those license holders on the specific changes that need to be made to their licences. And I think there are, um, you know, there is an element of, you know, putting the letter in the drawer until the Environment Agency is able to say, you know, specifically what those changes might look like. I think as a recommendation, it would be to have a look at your water resources set up um, for the business and look at, you know, what, what would be the impact if, for example, your licence had to reduce by 20%, by 50% or was revoked completely. What would need to be put in place to ensure that the business could continue um, and can continue to operate? 
the kind of environmental side of things, I guess, is self-explanatory. But is the purpose of all these changes to reduce water use in agriculture or kind of, you know, reduce the amount that's being abstracted? Or is it just to kind of like monitor it better? What What is the actual reason that they're making all these changes? So the purpose is to protect the environment. The purpose is to ensure that abstraction is sustainable. So many of the programmes that I've just mentioned, like the Environment Act um, and the um, Water Framework Directive, have the aim and objective to protect the environment. And so there has, um, and so they are looking at how they can restore sustainable abstraction. What does that actually look like? So in some catchments, it may be said that there has been over abstraction. And, and as I say, it's not just from the agriculture horticulture sector. The Environment Agency are looking at abstraction across all sectors. So you'll find that water companies are also um, being spoken with from the Environment Agency as to the impact of their abstraction and where um, their licences may need to be reduced going forward and what measures they could put in place. There's also um, an element as well of looking at the impact of climate change and population growth. So going forward, how much more water do we need to combat the impact of climate change and population growth? And the national framework, which was set up by the Environment Agency, set up five water resources regional groups. And the remit of those groups is to look at the provision of a multi-sector water resources regional plan that looks at water resource requirements 2050 and beyond across all sectors. So we can really start to look at how we can collaborate, how we can interlink, how we can co-create water resources plans um, across across the sectors within regions um, you know, for the future. And if we just take an example, Water Resources East, they've predicted um, taking into account climate change and population growth that we would need a further 444 megalitres of water per day for the non-public water supply sectors. So for, for sectors such as agriculture, for industry and power. And of that 444, they say that 64% of that would be required from the agricultural sector. So that's looking at ensuring that we protect the environment, ensuring that we mitigate against any impacts of climate change and ensuring that we can provide for a growing population. And where in the country do you think that, you know, all these changes to licences will probably be felt the most in terms of agriculture? If we look at abstraction, um, you know, across the, the country, I mean, we, we what, it's a quite an interesting fact that's stated that 2% of the abstracted water is um, for agriculture, is used for agriculture. But actually, agri the agricultural sector holds 64% of the licences. Um, and of that, 80% of those are in East Anglia. So we know that East Anglia is a hotspot. Uh, we know that that's a, a very dry, or could can be a very dry region as well. So that's certainly a um, you know a hotspot area of looking at the challenges that, that the weather brings, climate change brings, um, but also 
protecting the environment across that region. There are other hotspot areas as, as well across the country. So I've mentioned um, Nottinghamshire um, and um, the the area there. Um, you know where where yourself, where you're from. Um, you know there's um, areas across in the West Midlands, across. Um, you know, down into the southeast as well, where we have, you know, an awful lot of our top fruit, soft fruit vineyards um, down there and, um, you know, requiring water as well. The East Anglia is a region, um, you know, it's a, it's a powerhouse of production. Um, it's, um, I think it said, it said irrigation helps produce over 50% of the potatoes and 25% of all vegetables and fruit grown nationally and nearly half of this production is concentrated in the Anglian region um, so you know from I think it's 2018 figures it was saying water intensive crops are worth 824 million per annum in the east of England um, and uh, yet we grow about a quarter of England's total in that region. As well as these changes um, am I right in thinking the cost of licenses has also gone up quite substantially why is that and do you think it could potentially lead to an increase in non-compliance the environment agency undertook a strategic review of charges which were um, confirmed and authorized back in april 2022 and the reason for that was to recoup um costs that were being um were being utilized in order to determine applications. So um, the original cost of a new application was £135, and that was across the board. And so the Environment Agency undertook this review as a cost recovery exercise um, to ensure that the time spent on determining an application, an abstraction application, was properly uh, paid for. The concern that um, we have experienced or heard of throughout the, the last sort of uh, year as, as it's been in place and as it's then played out is that there are um, the, the costs have increased quite significantly for new abstraction licenses. So as I mentioned, historically they were £135. But now if you're looking at an abstraction license, and it really does depend on where you are in the country, whether there is water available, how much work is actually required in determining the abstraction license. But if you're looking to apply for an abstraction license, say for um, a reservoir to support a, um, a winter storage reservoir, that cost could increase into the thousands. And so there really has been a, a significant increase. Um, and what's important there is the the pro the, is the timing of the process. So when you apply for a grant through the Farming Transformation Fund Water Management Grant to support the costs of constructing a reservoir, you need to have planning permission and an abstraction license in place. And so often you're paying out for an abstraction license, which is now into the thousands, um, and applying for a grant, which you may not actually um, be successful with. So there, there potentially is more work that needs to be done, just looking at the alignment of all of those elements yeah. to ensure that it, it is, you know, straightforward for people to be able to um, apply for a grant, which really is trying to support water resources going forward and trying to ensure that water is then taken at a time when it should be available 
rather than putting pressure on um, abstraction in the summer months. Yeah. And I get that, obviously, you know, we do need to protect our water and our watercourses and things, but everything you said, it kind of sounds like it's just getting more and more difficult for farmers to grow irrigated crops. Um, do you think that the government kind of realised the importance of water use in agriculture? And do you think there's going to be, you know, perhaps some some beneficial changes going forwards, like, I don't know, more grants for water infrastructure or changes to planning permission and easing red tape on that a bit? We've asked for the um, process to be better aligned with the grant scheme. So, um, you know, I, I always sort of vision this this process as a three-legged stool. So I see the base of the, the stool being my reservoir and then the three legs being one being the grants, one being the planning permission and one being the abstraction licence. And all three legs have to balance um, and have to be aligned in order for me to construct the reservoir. And certainly we have continued to have discussions, particularly with my colleague, Richard Wordsworth, um, who leads on, on the grant schemes for the NFU. Um, we've had conversations with the RPA and DEFRA as to how we can better align that process. And certainly we welcome further rounds of this grant scheme um, to ensure that we can look at putting those resilient measures in place. I think it's really important as well to not forget that farmers do implement many solutions. So I think we can often, um, you know, think that actually, um, you know, we, we need to do we need to do more. But we, we do do um, quite a number of things to meet our water resource challenge, such as monitoring soil moisture. So that enables us to um, effectively and efficiently um, undertake irrigation. Uh, we look to improve soil health, which can increase the water holding capacity of soils. I know many growers have reviewed and continue to review the situation for their individual businesses, looking at cropping rotations, variety choice, um, alternative means of water storage. I think going forward, um, a, a big element will be collaboration. So even within our sector, how can we collaborate with neighbours, with whole catchments? To understand not only the water availability within those catchments but also water demand so how much water do we actually require in those catchments and how much water is actually available and i think going forward that will be really important and then looking at how we collaborate with other sectors so are there opportunities to look at collaborating with water companies on potential solutions or with the industry power sector you know, how can we look at this at a catchment scale as well as a, at an individual scale? And you mentioned about the government um, and, you know, we continue to have conversations with um, with DEFRA, with the Environment Agency, with ministers regarding um, the importance of water for food. And I think um, I think that's really important to understand why why are we um, why why is water for food needed? What what does it actually provide for? And often we can think of it quite simply as growing the food in the field. So looking at it at a very simple level, if we take a broader and say you know it's it's required for food production, so it's required to support the quality but also the quantity of food that we need. It's required for food security. So um, I know within the government food strategy, there was 
a requirement to see an increase in fruit and veg consumption by 30% per capita. So looking at how we can support that, um, that growth requirement. We also need to really look at um, global water scarcity. So when we import fruit and vegetables, where are we importing them from? And if we look at southern Spain, for example, they have a, a far more serious issue and concern with water resources than, than we do. And so on a, at a global level, we're potentially importing uh, products from a more water scarce area country um, than, than what we have. And then we've got the element that water for food production underpins ecosystem services, tourism, economic growth. So uh, the UK food and drink industry um, was worth 110 billion. And also employment, the UK food and, uh, food and drink industry, I think, employs about 3.8 million people. So there is a real breadth and depth to the question of why is water for food important? And when looking at engaging with government, it's really important that all of those elements are understood so that when we start looking at reducing agriculture's or horticulture's ability to access water, we recognise water for food as an essential water user. And we understand that a food risk assessment is undertaken to really allow the importance of the sector and the impact and implications to be taken into consideration. Yeah, definitely. And all this stuff on water, I mean, we've, we've talked quite a lot about kind of um, like high value crops and horticulture, um, potatoes. Do you think it has a wider implication for, you know, other sectors like cereals or even the livestock sector? What we saw last year through the drought was that the lack of water available affected all areas geographically and all areas across the agriculture and horticulture sector. So we, we talk about potatoes and vegetables, but there's soft fruit, top fruit, there's vineyards, and then as you say, there's the livestock sector that were impacted by heat stress. So we know that milk yields, for example, are affected. We know that some um, species of livestock, you know, um, are affected more badly than others in terms of, of heat stress themselves. So certainly it is sector, um, you know, it is, it is broad across the country and across all sectors. And as you say, if you look specifically within the um, agriculture sector and we look at those crops that are his, have historically been irrigated, we are seeing, you know, a shift in, you know, what what can be irrigated going forward. And that's often where the irrigation infrastructure is available. So, for example, if we're growing cereals and sugar beets um, in, in a, you know, a same vicinity as where we would grow potatoes and vegetables, there is often the infrastructure available to irrigate those crops in periods of droughts where that water then isn't being used for the potatoes and the and the vegetables. What we saw last year was prioritisation of, of water. And so it was very much about those businesses and um, reviewing the crops in the ground and, re, and, and, and making sure that they had a, a priority irrigation schedule to ensure that they had enough water to get around those crops that they prioritised. 
And just finally, looking at the kind of situation at the moment and irrigation prospects for the season ahead, um, how are things looking from your perspective? And have you kind of got any advice that you might give to farmers going into this irrigation season? Yeah, well, we've we've still got two areas. um, So two of the 14 areas of England that continue to be in drought status. And I think that's really important to remember. So most of East Anglia and then Devon and Cornwall are still in drought status. Um, the north and northwest are in normal status and the remaining areas um, in recovery. Um, and all of Wales is in normal status. And, and that, those statuses are as defined by the Environment Agency. Um, I think it's, um, it's a difficult position because last year, um, was such a um, you know a warm year, a dry year. There were record uh, records broken in terms of um, you know temperatures, etc. Um, and so we really did need all the rainfall we could get during that winter period. March has been quite wet, um, as many many people will uh, will testify. Um, but for some areas that maybe hasn't done enough to recharge groundwater aquifers which provide a base flow to rivers and so when this rain starts to subside um, then we might see that those surface waters that haven't got that underpinning from the groundwaters we may see those surface waters recede quite quickly. Um, the, the, the challenge and the concern is that many abstraction licenses have restrictions on them within their terms and conditions. So when an abstraction license is is issued, as I say, it might have a condition within it called a hands-off flow. So this is a condition which restricts abstraction when river flows are low in order to protect the environment and other users. So because of that receding of the surface waters, we might find that some restrictions kick in much quicker than than they would have done in previous years. Um, in terms of irrigation prospects, we uh, it's produced by the Environment Agency and outlines the prospects for irrigation in a given season. So for the 2023 season that we're coming into, the prospects at the moment, which was from the February report, range from good in the northwest and Wessex to good to moderate in the northeast and the Thames and the Kent catchments moderate in the Midlands and Devon and Cornwall, and then East Anglia is sat at moderate to poor at the moment. Um, The Environment Agency are going to provide another update at the end of April, so we may see the impact of the March rains uh, coming through into those prospects, but also it may take into account the the weather forecast that the Met Office are predicting um, as well. So there'll be a combination of uh, factors that they take into account to look at providing us with a um, you know more up-to-date picture at the end of April. Right okay so a bit of a wait and see situation for the use then? It's certainly a wait and see I mean what um, there are a couple of things as you mentioned about what can abstractors do so in terms of those abstractors that are abstracting now to fill reservoirs um, you know on a, on a winter abstraction license so there's a broad uh, brush and um, a generalisation. The abstraction window opens on the 1st of November and closes on the 31st of March. Um, and so many licences will have the ability for the abstractors to abstract within that period. 
what we have been advised is that if abstractors are not able to fill those their reservoirs within that period, i.e. by tomorrow, then they do need to contact the, the environment agency, their local contact, to see if there is an extension to the um, abstraction period um, that is could be provided to them. So that enables them to abstract um, further, you know, into April um, and hopefully fill their reservoirs. The other element is, as I mentioned before, is about talking to neighbours, talking to others in your catchment. So certainly if you um, don't feel you're going to be able to meet your water requirements, talking to others who may, because of cropping rotations, because of plans, might not need to use all of their license in this coming year. So you may might be able to share volumes or trade volumes, which allows you to work through this year on a collaborative approach. That approach will just be something that becomes more important going forward as as we kind of ride through these difficult seasons and changes occur. You know, it's certainly not going away and the legislation is certainly not going away. So how we can work to um, ensure that we've got that water for food production going. But all of those reasons that I highlighted earlier, you know, to provide food production security, economic growth, you know, business resilience. There are a number of things you mentioned about the government and we talked about a food risk assessment, but there are a number of things in terms of the support required for water resources planning in agriculture. And, and it's something we continue our conversations about how the sector is funded through this process. Um, the Water for Food group is a group that was set up some years ago. It's chaired by the NFU, but it's a holder group, including um, various number of stakeholders and DEFRA and the Environment Agency are part of that group as well. Um, but that's set up a task and finish group led by Harriet Robson from EnviroWater and supported uh, very importantly and heavily by Steve Moncaster, who's the technical director um, of BAWAG, a water abstractor group in the Broads. And that's looking at what does a water resources management plan look like for agriculture and what does a drought plan look like? And I think that's a fantastic piece of work which the sector is, is leading on looking at how we can support ourselves as a sector, you know, going forward to build that sustainability. Um, I think the other thing um, as well is just the ability for agriculture, for the sector to have time um, to put measures in place when abstraction license changes are made. So, it, it, you know, often they, there doesn't, well, not often, but there doesn't need to be any, um, any communication lead-in time for uh, changes to abstraction licences from the Environment Agency. They can make changes when you go to renew your licence. So if you had a time-limited licence that was due to expire next March, for example, um, you know, at that time of renewal, you would put in your renewal application and the Environment Agency could actually reduce or revoke your licence in terms of it would just not renew your application. And so what we need is a better timeline of engagement with the process to allow us to understand what changes are coming down the line um, and also that time to be able to put measures in place. We all know a, a, a reservoir isn't built overnight, is it? So just mm -hmm. giving, us, giving us some time to be able to 
you know, actually get the planning permission, get the abstraction license, get the grant funding available, then build the reservoir, then fill the reservoir, can take a number of years before um, it's actually up and running. Um, and, and we need that time to be able to build that resilience into the sector. For our second speaker, I'm chatting with Daniel Johns, who is the Managing Director at Water Resources East. We're going to be catching up on what challenges farmers are facing with water supply and what options we might have as an industry to safeguard future supplies. Okay, so thank you, Daniel, for coming on this podcast um, and discussing such a hot topic with us, um, not only for agriculture, but for every sector um, concerned by water availability and security. Um, so just to start, can we just have a little bit of information about you, about Water Resources East um, and sort of what you look after in your role? Of course, yeah. I'm Daniel Johns. I'm Managing Director of Water Resources East and WRE was set up. Uh, to help manage the risk of water scarcity for the whole of the east of England. So we are a, an independent membership organisation, a not-for-profit set up and uh, funded by water companies, by the agriculture sector, uh, by local councils and by the energy sector as well. So we, we bring people together to, to look to the long term and to work out exactly where our water is going to come from in future. Lovely. And give us a little bit of background um, about the current water situation in the east. What's it looking like at the moment? Well, we know uh, that the east is one of the driest parts of the country. In fact, it is the driest. It gets on average about only two thirds of average national rainfall. And we had a very, very dry year last year. So um, you know, we had um, obviously some of the hottest, uh, the hottest daily temperatures. We had ex- we exceeded 40 degrees for the first time in the UK on the instrumental record. Uh, last summer was incredibly dry. The whole year was very dry. And we've also had now a very dry winter. Um, so the um, we had an agricultural drought, an environmental drought last year, and uh, we are looking looking to head to the summer where again again water resources are looking quite scarce. And so, what's the sector that's got the largest demand of water at the moment? Would you say? Well, in the east of England, the the largest sector by by some by some margin is for the public water supply. So these are kind of supplies provided for. Uh, for households and businesses, the drinking water through our taps and supplies, but agriculture in the east of England is already is also a very significant uh, user of water, uh, direct abstractor from water from surface and groundwater sources, and in certain catchments at certain times of year, agriculture is a very significant, if not the dominant, uh, water user, uh, for particularly for growing crops. And talking about the agricultural sector sort of specifically, do you think this demand in terms of sort of managing the supply and demand, do you think it's the demand that might need to decrease or is the aim to sort of make more water available? It has to be both. So um, Water Resources East published its first ever uh, regional water resources plan last last November for consultation. And what it set out was that um, we both need to manage the water that does fall within the East much more efficiently. But we also need to store more water, particularly during those kind of wetter winter months, so that it's available for agriculture, for the public water supply in the spring and the summer. I mean, for, for agriculture in particular, you know, irrigating crops is a very significant user of water during those kind of spring, those key spring and summer months, where the kind of the, the use that you can get up to about 600 million litres of water per day needed to irrigate crops when you've got particularly dry periods. And that means you say using water much more efficiently, but also for farming to to find new ways in which to store water and to make it available when they really need it. 
And sort of what would you say is the main challenge that farmers are going to come across, you know, in terms of water security? And is it something that is limited just to, um, you know, farms that have crops under irrigation or is it going to have implications to the wider sector, you know, people with livestock, etc.? I think it is relevant to all sectors, you know, all, all uh, farmers and growers, but particularly for growers uh, that have heavy demands for, for irrigation uh, in, in the east of England. And one of the challenges coming through really is, is not only is the climate changing, not only is the environment struggling because of over abstraction in certain catchments, that because of those, uh, those twin effects, the Environment Agency will be reviewing all the existing abstraction licenses that farmers hold. And in many cases, because of the environmental uh, damage that's being caused, we'll have to reduce the levels of abstraction that farmers uh, have. So if you've got an abstraction license at the moment, one of the main challenges is that you may not have that license in future years. So just continuing on with the new abstraction laws and the Water Resources East Regional Plan, the law suggests that the individual farmers have 28 days to appeal against notices of licenses of water being cut back, making it challenging for farmers to source alternative water sources and possibly risking future crops. What would you recommend to farmers in this situation in light of these law changes? Well, I think they should start to think now about where, uh, where their water may well come, on, come from in future. So what types of crops they want to grow, uh, how much water they need um, with the changing climate, how much additional water may, may they need because of the kind of longer, hotter, drier growing seasons. And it may well be that they have permanent licenses at the moment, but permanent licenses will also be being reviewed as part of this uh, process with the Environment Agency able to change even permanent licenses after uh, 1st of January 2028 without compensation if it's causing damage to the environment. So I think if I were farming in the east of England in particular, I'd be looking to you know, where my water is going to come from, how much headroom might I have within the existing licenses, uh, can I use water more efficiently by, for example, using kind of booms and trickle irrigation rather than water cannon? Uh, can I store more water or capture more, rate, uh, more rainwater myself through, you know, if you've got glass houses and polytunnels, can you capture some of that rainwater and then recycle it to, for irrigation, irrigation for crops? And uh, also investment in the kind of large winter storage reservoirs, so you know, capturing that excess rainfall in the winter months and storing it for use in the summer. So looking sort of more generally at the um, regional plan, obviously looking to safeguard water resources, what would you say are the main practical actions that would apply to farmers within there? Well, I say I think it's about how how farming uh, farmers can use water more efficiently. So thinking about how they're irrigating crops, do they uh, are they using the very latest sensors to understand soil moisture deficits? I've visited farms that use uh, kind of satellite imagery and remote sensing just to make sure they're not over or under irrigating uh, particular crops or particular uh, parts of the field. Um, so investing in the very latest uh, you know, water efficient uh, irrigation techniques. Um, so I think one of the main things that farmers can also do is think about uh, capturing their own rainfall um, from the buildings that they have, from the polytunnels, from the glass houses. And um, what also one of the other uh, kind of developments that's really exciting, I think, is the potential for farm businesses to share water locally between, between neighbouring farm businesses. Uh, because what we've seen is that if individual farmers hold their own licence, those licences individually are at risk of having, you know, being told each summer that they, they can no longer abstract from, from the ground or, well, particularly from, from rivers and watercourses. 
But if you share those licenses between neighboring businesses, it may well be that you can you can use the kind of excess licenses that other farm businesses have. Uh, and overall, as a cluster of businesses, you can manage your water resources needs yourselves. Well, that's really interesting. How would farmers go about sort of working out who might have excess headroom as they're in their licenses? Well, you obviously can you can check your own license conditions. You can look back at your own records of how much water you've used in previous seasons. Uh, compare that against the kind of license volumes that you have within the license as it stands. And one of the first things that the Environment Agency will probably look to do is remove any excess headroom that you have within your license. So if you've only used, let's say, 80% of your license at most over the last kind of 10 to 15 years, then the chances are the Environment Agency will probably remove that extra 20% and take you back to where where, you know, the, the most you've ever, ever used in the past. Um, but in some cases, the Environment Agency will have to go further in order to protect the environment. And it, they could reduce uh, licenses to just the average historic use. So, which means that you know, in practice, farmers will be left short of water uh, almost every other year. Wow, okay. And how quick do you think these changes might start to happen? Um, it, it depends on where you are within the region. So, for example, in the Ant Valley in North Norfolk, these changes are already being made now. So uh, 17 uh, license holders have been told that by October 2024, they will either have to cease abstraction or to curtail it really quite significantly. And uh, that review is now being rolled out for the whole of the broad special area conservation. So that's you know, most of the, the catchments in, in, in Norfolk. There's also a kind of rolling process, uh, catchment by catchment, where the Environment Agency reviews licenses. So there's another uh, almost 300 licenses being reviewed across East Anglia by March 2024. And the Environment Act uh, passed by Parliament uh, just back in 2021, I say means that permanent licenses are no longer permanent because if that abstraction is causing damage to the environment, then the Environment Agency is, is required to change that license and will no longer be paying compensation. Uh, so in effect, you know, permanent licenses are something that are, are a thing of the past. There's no such thing as a permanent right to water in future. So just looking into potential future opportunities, there are three reservoirs being constructed in the east, including the South Links, Fens and the North Suffolk Winter Storage. What might the implications of these reservoirs be for farmers? Well, the, those three projects have been chosen um, on the basis of the broader benefits they deliver for the region. So they will be built by the water companies, they will be paid for by the water companies through customer bills, um, but they've been chosen and in terms of their location, uh, located to provide benefits for agriculture and obviously for, for the environment. So I mean, what those reservoirs will do is mean that water companies no longer need to extract as much water during the kind of spring and summer months from the environment, from their existing ground and uh, surface water sources, which means that the environment will become more resilient to drought conditions. And if the environment's more resilient to drought conditions, then the chances are that agriculture will be, will be able to abstract water for longer into those kind of, uh, into those key irrigation seasons. So even though the water in, in the reservoir itself will probably only be for, for kind of households and businesses, agriculture should also benefit from those reservoirs being built. Okay, brilliant. And talking about the Felixstowe hydrocycle, um, just wondered what your perspective is um, on this project and would you see this as a potential model for farmers moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. I think the Felixstowe hydrocycle is an, you know, an excellent project, fantastic scheme. 
Um, and I uh, was at the closing conference for the EU program that helped fund uh, at least part of the Felix Low Hydrocycle project. Uh, what the project does, and I'm sure you'll, you'll know, but what it, what it does is it captures water at the bottom of the catchment that's being pumped, uh, that would otherwise be pumped out to sea by the internal drainage board. It captures that water and it recycles it and moves it back up to the top of the catchment where a cluster of farm businesses can then uh, store it for when they need it in in the summer months. So it's it's a really it was a fantastic way in which to recycle water within catchments, which also helps protect the environment, and obviously avoids that water otherwise just flowing out to the North Sea and, and, and being lost. And one of the things that Water Resources East is now doing is working with uh, Norfolk County Council and Net Zero East to look to see where uh, such you know such schemes could be built elsewhere within Norfolk in particular because you know, recycling IDB drainage water is a fantastic way in which we can secure and um, make our supplies more resilient. Brilliant, okay. And are there any other systems or models in the pipeline that you've heard of um, that might be sort of up and coming to safeguard water in the future? Well, I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the um, mileage we think is in water sharing, not just between adjacent farm businesses, but also potentially between sectors. So we talked about the major reservoirs, which will help uh, water companies be more kind of self-sufficient through their reservoir supplies, and therefore hopefully allow more water in the environment for agriculture. Uh, there's a scheme that's already up and running, the Lower Neem partnership between Anglian Water and uh, the internal drainage boards there and uh, farm businesses where Anglian Water agrees not to take as much water, particularly during the irrigation season uh, that it's entitled to under its existing licenses, but allows that water to, to continue to flow downstream through, through the River Neem uh, for abstraction by, by farmers. And I think there was lots of potential opportunities to do, do a sim take a similar approach elsewhere within the region. And that's why Water Resources East is setting up a new drought group where we can get uh, different sectors, farm businesses, abstractor groups, uh, IDBs, the environment agency with the water companies to look to see where there might be water available, um, particularly as we get into what hopefully, well, uh, which well may well be a very dry summer, um, to see what water is available and can it be shared so that irrigation can continue. Brilliant. Okay. Well, we look forward to hearing more about those developments in due course. Um, and just lastly, while we're on, what advice sort of generally would you give to farmers? Um, obviously, with the upcoming season, sort of looking into tap into new sources or just to generally sort of safeguard their water on farm. I would be talking to my like uh, local environment agency teams, local environment agency officers, both about the emerging kind of uh, drought outlook for the summer but also about the kind of security of their own water abstraction licenses to see what kind of changes may be coming down the track, what reviews are, there, are being planned. And it's all to a fixed timetable. So the environment agency should be able to let them know, well, you know, your license won't be reviewed for two years, but then it might be. And if we do review it, uh, you could well lose X percent of your license. So again, I think part of this is about longer term planning by farm businesses for their future water needs and starting to think now about where may where they might, might get water from in future if they can no longer abstract what they have in the past. Great, okay. Thanks very much, Daniel. Thanks for coming on and chatting to us today. No, pleasure, thank you. Now for our final speaker today, Professor Jerry Knox is Professor of Agricultural Water Management based within the Centre for Water, Environment and Development at Cranfield University 
and he's going to talk us through the more scientific side of things, including what's going on with the weather and how we can use irrigation water better. Jerry, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, I just wanted to kind of start by setting the scene a bit um, and looking at what the current water situation looks like for the season ahead um, in terms of kind of irrigation prospects for growers. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Alice. The, obviously, you may be aware the situation is, is it's finally balanced, is what I would say at this stage. It's sort of a spring starting. We've had, we did have some heavier rains at the back end of last year, um, but the real problem is having had such a protracted, long and severe drought in 2022, we needed um, well above average rainfall for a sustained period during the winter in order to recharge our aquifers in, in order to provide the, the high flows for extractors uh, to, to fill their, their, store, their storage reservoirs. Now, the winter season did get off to a good start with some, some useful rain, but certainly in January and well, most of February, large areas of the eastern England and other regions of the country where irrigation is concentrated have received well below average rainfall. So the situation now is that uh, the recharge period is all but coming to an end and um, crops are being planted and the the situation is many reservoirs are are still not full and there are concerns about us going into a dry spring and even an average summer uh, would really challenge the water resource situation. So the environment agency and the farmers and the, the sort of the bodies that agencies that look after agriculture are they are quite concerned about the outlook for spring and the summer yeah understandably so i mean where i am in the west midlands i think from most of january and february we barely had a drop of rain it was crazy but i mean this the last couple of weeks we've had a fair bit but yeah it's quite yeah, worrying the problem is, is as often said it's it's the sometimes the wrong kind of rain we need we need gentle sustained rain that uh, provides time for the, the, the water to infiltrate into the soils. But because the soils are still quite dry, short, intense, what we call sort of short-duration, high-intensity rainfall events are, are, less, um, are less useful in terms of recharge. So we, we start to see rapid runoff, and rather than the water going into the soil, it runs off into the streams and, and then is, um, leaves the landscape. So... Yes, it, it is a challenge that, um, and it's, it's actually also important to remember that you know, we tend to think about droughts being summer summer events, summer natural hazards, but winter droughts um, are often more impactful and more of a problem, particularly if they follow a summer drought. And I think that's something that we need to start to, to realise in the UK that um, getting these mixes of both summer and winter droughts is really where the challenge around water resources for agriculture is going to is going to be concentrated. Yeah, and we are seeing these, you know, very dry springs. We had last summer was obviously very dry and hot. Um, they feel a lot more frequent now, almost kind of annually in recent years. So going forwards, how frequently do you think that agriculture can kind of expect to be affected by these adverse weather events? And also to add to that, probably very heavy rainfall as well, you know, like 2020 when we had just rain, rain, rain. Yes, yeah, so I think we're going to have to just get used to, to living with uncertainty around our weather. 
um, the, the, the sort of the historical pattern of our weather that we used to be used to is, is, is no longer with us and we need to get used to the fact that we're going to be um, experiencing more frequent and extreme natural hazards, both uh, droughts and floods. So floods being short duration, quite localised and high intensity events and causing problems for agriculture. But in the same way, droughts coming through in the winter and the summer, but they're slow onset creeping phenomenon um, and then much more uh, their impact is much more regional and larger scale. So I think we're just going to have to get used to both changing rainfall patterns, too much, too little, but also couples with these extreme temperatures. And so some years we may get dry dry springs and wet summers, others we may get wet springs uh, and, and wet summers. We, it's that sort of pattern that is being disturbed. And that causes real problems for agriculture because planting programs have to be made in the autumn, and then contracts committed and planting starting in the spring. But if you experience a winter drought and you sense that there may be water constraints or restrictions the following summer, then as we're seeing this year, many growers are, are pulling back on their planted areas for irrigated cropping because they can't afford to partially irrigate these high-value crops because the penalties on quality and quality assurance are just too high. So. The risks at the moment are, are, are out of balance and most of the growers are carrying a disproportionate amount of risk for these irrigated crops. And the retailers in the, the supply chain, I don't think have really um, acknowledged that those risks need to be shared. And so in terms of um, kind of mitigating the impact of very dry periods on farm, um, I wanted to kind of explore this from three different angles. The first being through practical farming. So how can um, farmers that are irrigating kind of get better at using irrigation water that they do have access to? Um, I'm kind of thinking things like timing of irrigation, um, soil moisture deficit, little and often, kind of how to balance that with the realities of practical farming. Right, so I guess when we're thinking about trying to improve irrigation management in a sort of, yeah, in, a, in a temperate climate such as the UK, it is a challenge because the, the sort of, yeah, the capricious nature of our summer rainfall makes it quite challenging to uh, to get that timing and that uh, the amount of the, the irrigation scheduling right. It's much easier in a, an arid or semi-arid environment to, to irrigate. It's much harder in humid or temperate environments. But I guess the, the main message is that um, farmers need to be adopting a objective approach to scheduling. So whether that's uh, using in-situ soil moisture sensors to understand the state of their soil moisture, coupling that with with uh, crop models, there are various models being used commercially to support growers to understand how their crops developing and how much water it needs. But also combining that with you know in-field inspection, the spaders. Um, you know, is, is part of that armory that the growers need. So I think sort of promoting more objective-based scheduling. But also, I think it's important to realise that in the past, maybe we could argue that farmers were, um, were giving irrigation a lower priority, but energy prices in the last few years, and certainly recently, have really um, focused the mind on irrigation. And I don't know any farmers who irrigate profligately, Wastewater intentionally, it's just it. It's, they just can't 
they want to get the timing right, they want to maximize nutrient and fertilizer uptake, they want to stretch out their limited resource through the season, and they're paying for very expensive water by the time it gets to the crop. So there's no incentive to, um, to waste water. But um, yeah, I think the focus must be on using objective methods, and there's a lot of support now around for helping farmers to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it might be a bit of a generalisation, but I do think these farmers growing kind of high value irrigated crops are very good at the kind of attention to detail and, you know, getting it as good as they can. But yeah, there's always the challenge when you're balancing it with the weather. Yes, I think the other challenge is when you then have your restrictions, your, your obstructions restricted during key growth periods. So you may well be following an objective approach to scheduling and following the instruction on when to irrigate and how much to apply. But if you then get restricted in terms of how much you can actually abstract, then that really causes a bit of a challenge because the question is, is do you then partially irrigate all of your area or fully irrigate part of it? And you then have to look at the, the sort of the, the economic implications of that. So it's, it's the restrictions or the risk of having your water abstractions restricted that then um, cause problems with scheduling. And often in the dry years, like 2022, um, the weather was so so dry and, and the temperature so high that scheduling was almost um, irrelevant because the farmers knew they needed to irrigate, but it was just quickly how quickly they could get around their fields. Yeah. And they, they were constrained by a lack of equipment and the peak rates that they could abstract. They didn't need... Um, the soil moisture sensors or the models to tell them to, to irrigate, but it was just about um, being constrained by how much they could they could apply. Yeah, absolutely. And that moves on quite nicely to my next question, um, which is looking at soil health. Um, farmers are obviously a lot more conscious of this now, and organic amendments being added is kind of fairly common. But what more can we do to kind of make soils better cope with lack of water? Um, you know, is there different types of organic matter bit that we could add that maybe might be better at water retention, for example? Right, so I guess the challenge here is that most of the irrigated crops, the high-value vegetables and potatoes, are grown on, on light to medium soils, so they're fairly droughty, they have low um, moisture con- available water contents, and therefore that's the challenge, and, they, and that's for good reason, because... They need those soils in order to um, to maximise crop growth and quality, in order to support um, lifting at harvest and for mechanisation. So they they choose those soils for good reason. But obviously, you need to try and maximise the available water content of those soils. And but increasing organic matter is, is the obvious one. And any anything that can increase the organic matter will help. And the reason it's so important is that we tend to think about irrigating crops, but actually we're not irrigating the crops, we're irrigating the soil in which the crops are grown. So we need to be thinking more about how do we improve soil management as well as understanding the agronomic demands for water. So improving soil management through organic matter, um, incorporating residues, um, even thinking about um, using tide ridging, ways to try and attenuate the water, the rain, any rainfall or irrigation that's applied to the soil is also helpful. But the problem with 
field rainwater harvesting or tide ridging approaches is that it tends to then create a bit of a challenge to mechanisation and uh, operations um, in in the wheelings where most of the runoff occurs. But I think you know as as we see abstraction licences sort of gradually cut back, we see our rainfall patterns becoming more variable. I think farm rainwater harvesting, I'm convinced, is going to become a much more important part of the, the sort of overall water management of, of those crops. For the, the third kind of mitigation point, you've covered this a bit already, but um, technology, are there platforms out there that, you know, farmers can use to better manage crops in terms of water use? So, what, yeah, what are the options that farmers can do to try and adopt more precise irrigation methods? And there's a lot of interest internationally on, on implementing precision irrigation technologies. But these are largely most relevant to overhead, large overhead systems like the centre pivot irrigators of the linear moves, which we don't have so many of those in in, in the UK. They're much more widespread in in large areas such as Australia, the Middle East, and, and the US, and where you have much larger fields. So, but I think still the the concept of precision irrigation is still valid in the UK, and we. attention to detail again.
and they fit in well to the, the UK rotational pattern of cropping and movement of equipment around the farm. So they, uh, they're not going to disappear, they'll, they'll be part of the, the, me- the method of irrigation in the UK, I think, for a long time. But um, obviously energy cost is now becoming a bit of a key issue with these systems, and maybe we might see more sprinkler systems um, being, being installed into fields where you've got lower pressure, you can sector fields and differentially irrigate, and if you've got lower pressures, you should have uh, lower energy costs. The problem with drip irrigation or micro-irrigation is that you can't really, it's precise irrigation if it's well managed, but you can't differentially irrigate with drip unless, again, you divide the field into lots of subsectors. But um, if we have a wet summer with drip irrigation, then uh, the benefits of drip are, you know, are largely um, lost, but in dry years, they, they, can be, they can be very significant. So I think we're seeing drip being put onto high value crops, not to save water, but to increase the uniformity of the crop and to um, provide better nutrient uptake. And so kind of looking ahead to the future, where do you think the kind of most merit is probably going to be in terms of better water use on farms? I know you mentioned um, rainwater harvesting a bit earlier. Um and, you know, I don't know, perhaps water sharing schemes. What what do you think we need to be kind of focusing the mind on to to kind of future-proof our crops a bit more? Yes, I think you mentioned the, the key word there was water sharing. And we've been doing a lot of work in eastern England and particularly with abstracted in the, in the, the River Lark catchment and the River Lark catchment partnership, looking at the potential for water sharing. So this is different from water trading, which is more formal and legal, legally bound in terms of um, trading licences and, and licences to, to irrigate. Water sharing is about informal, short-term um, movement of water between adjacent farms or groups of farms. Because for, for many valid reasons, some farms in some years don't use their full licence allocation. But conversely, their neighbours may may be quite constrained with their license allocation and may be using their full allocation every year. So there's a real opportunity to to be innovative and rather than thinking about individual farm businesses, looking at groups of farms and how they can move water between themselves to share their license allocation more effectively. Those licenses have already been, um, there are this concern about, well, impact on the environment, but all those licenses already have um, environmental protection built in because they have hands-off flow conditions, they have um, environmental conditions built into them to, to protect them from, uh, to protect the environment and other abstractors. So that license has been allocated and if it's available, it should be able to be used by either that farmer or his neighbour uh, within certain you know, sort of operating conditions. And when you think that many farms are actually adjacent to each other and they have infrastructure that could be relatively easily connected, then by increasing the connectivity of the businesses, it means you can move water around much more easily. And then you can build into that the availability of reservoirs and storage and look to um, be harvesting the high flows, not just in winter, but scalping the floods. And there's a lot of interest in moving from timing licenses, licenses 
in, we've shown that it in, in, in uh, we've shown that it potentially it could be really useful. Yeah, all about chatting to your neighbour. And exactly. And if we don't start safeguarding water, um, where do you think irrigated agriculture in the UK is going to kind of end up? Do you think you know we might see less less crops grown, more imports? What What do you think the outlook would be like? At the moment, the situation is it, it's it is a, it's it's a challenging one. Where you know our departure from Europe has exposed us to the the risks of uh, being highly dependent on imports. We still import just under half our food, and most of that is fresh fruit and vegetables from even more arid parts of the world, which themselves are under increased drought risk and, and water resource stress. So we're we're, we're placing a large degree of trust that um, we can just rely on, continue to rely on uh, those imports, which I think is a dangerous strategy. I think we really need to be supporting our agricultural um, primary production base to, to secure um, reasonable access to water, to get a, a fair share of water going forward in order to support um, increased um, production of uh, fresh fruit and vegetables. It, may, it, it has a much lower um, carbon footprint because it's not being imported. We have very, very stringent controls over um, production and um, uh, inputs, so uh, there's, a, there's a high degree of, um, of provenance and um, control there. And I think there's also the, the, the economic um, argument that there is, you know, there are many thousands of businesses supporting, you know, sort of, um, you know, a very large number of um, people in livelihoods in the rural economy and the, the agri-food and drink sector is the largest um, industrial sector in the UK so it is important and so we need to therefore make sure that water access to water that's reliable and affordable um, is uh, you know is provided if we don't if we don't do that then farmers will move out of irrigated production they'll move back to cereals and extensive production lower inputs lower risk and we'll be faced with the kind of fruit and vegetable shortages and issues that we've been experiencing recently. Um, and that will, you know, that will be a very sad state of affairs. So there is a real opportunity to support the sector. The government need to recognise that. And the regulators need to understand the value and the importance of water for agriculture um, and, um, and, and support it accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. Let's just hope those food shortages we saw in last month have hopefully got people talking a bit more in government and thinking about food security more seriously. Thanks, Jerry. That was great. Thanks, Jerry and Alice, and to all of our speakers today. That's all we've got time for this episode, but we hope you enjoyed it and got some takeaway messages. We'll be back again in a few weeks' time to explore the world of funding and grants. See you next time.